You're listening to an Arte podcast. Known as the Olympics of Art, the Venice Biennale is pretty much the top for artists. New Zealand's 2019 representative is Dane Mitchell, whose project delivers cryptic lists of the vanished, the lost, or the destroyed. Mitchell's work broadcasts a vast inventory of bygone things to locations throughout the city via fake tree cell towers, providing a hotspot with which you can hear the lists. At the Palazzina Canonica, the epicentre of the work, scrolling lengths of paper lists emerge from a printer placed high upon a structural frame. They cascade down, settling in ripples on the floor, forming an elegantly minimal installation of all which has been lost. So the selection process of the space, what's yeah. that? What's that like? Um, it's completely yeah. It's it's the what what it's the extended creative team's decision. So the creative team being me at the centre of that, and two um, curators. In my instance, two curators. Although you know other artists have had one. Um, and yeah, you basically go to Venice and you start looking. You start sort of walking around and hunting out, you know, preferred sites, venues that make sense, that have some kind of, let's say, conceptual link to the project. And because my project is sort of operating as uh, across multiple venues, we needed to see a lot. So I went up for my first site visit about a week after um, finding out that I that I um, had had secured this uh, this um, exhibition, and so I went up to Venice and just we just looked at a lot of stuff. We have a um, an exhibition coordinator on the ground in Venice, a local, and he helps sort of facilitate meetings and some access to sites that that um, he has looked into before we go up and basically we were walking around uh, and looking at a whole lot of things and we'd, we'd, we'd walk past this garden and I'd asked, you know, well, what's this and can we have a look at it? And Diego, our exhibition coordinator in Venice, just said, actually, it could be a bit hard. It's a government organisation. They're a marine research institute. They don't rent space. It's more through partnerships that they look to be involved in you know, things exterior to their core business of um, marine research. And so I said, well, can we meet? I'd like to just, you know, talk to them about it. And, uh, yeah, they were really keen to pursue a relationship with us. And so we built a kind of partnership with them, which allowed us to have access or use of this particular um, Palazzina, the Palazzina Cononica, which is the former headquarters of the Marine Research Institute of Venice. How wonderful. Yeah, it's a it's a it's great that we don't have a fixed location in a way. Many countries do. Um, there's a there's a central part of the uh, of the Biennale called the which is in the Giardini, the garden, and the Giardini is where we're part of the larger um, curated exhibition. The central exhibition of the Biennale um, takes place, and then there are these. Uh, national pavilions that are sort of uh, expressions of nationhood in weird ways. And it's a sort of geopolitical map of a moment in time. It's sort of a geopolitical map of the m- middle of the 20th century. There's sort of England and France at the top of the hill and this kind of fascist piece of German architecture <laughs> to the left and 
Israel and the states are tucked around the corner <laughs> together. So it's a, it's quite an unusual thing. But, you know, those countries are, are, are sort of um, wedded to those pieces of architecture and they're not always, um, they're not always uh, that flexible. So having that flexibility, um, I think, is a really um, positive thing. We're lucky to be able to make that decision per, uh, to be, so, that the, so that the space relates to the project in the, in the most kind of meaningful way it can. That's really interesting to know, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so those those spaces for the for the more established countries, I suppose, or the biggest the bigger populative countries, do, have they ever moved around, or they really are just sort of locked into that? They're, quite, they're locked in. I, I think t- maybe two biennales ago, the French and the German pavilions made an agreement with one another to swap buildings, which I which which is quite unusual. I mean, I'm sure there are other instances of it. I know that Australia, who are in there, they were one of the last countries to secure a site. They were renovating the building for a number of years and at least one Biennale was held off-site because the building was under construction. So, um, yeah, they're, kind of, they're quite fixed in many respects. I mean, Canada, for example, their building was um, sort of pulled apart by an artist. I'm not sure if that was somehow... Um, how you know whether that was whether whether the building was there was plans to pull the building apart or not uh, before the artist did so, but <laughs> um, but they were instructed by the Biennale Foundation in Italy to reconstruct the building exactly as it was. So um, they are sort of architectural monuments in their own right that um, that these countries are sort of responsible for. That's really interesting to know. Mm. Um, sound talking about your work. Yeah. Sound plays an integral role in this work. Um, when people, uh, with people being able to listen to the lists that uh, of of bygone things, as as well as imagine, I imagine it conjures up. Having not been there, it conjures up an image of wandering around Venice, tuning into these hotspots, and listening to these lists, and then finally going into the New Zealand Pavilion and and seeing this kind of almost crescendo with electronic printing noises emitting from the interior installation and possibly the the odd lapping of the Venetian water. Um, but let's face it, Venice is really noisy that time of year. It's really crowded and muggy. Um, what, 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 how is it, how is the experience in the room? How is it, how is it, what's it like experienced in the room, in the noise? How did the voices come out of those cell towers? What do they sound like? What's the tone? So um, the voice, the the voice is a, it's a synthetic human voice. It's a it's a kind of um, technological surrogate for us in a way. Her name is Amy. She's an Amazon. I did not know that. <laughs> oh my goodness! How the did spelling... I not? How did no one tell me this? <laughs> the spelling the spelling's <laughs> different, but yeah, her name is Amy. How's your name spelt? A M Y. Oh, yeah. Trashy. <laughs> <laughs> and she's um, she's an Amazon product. Yeah. So she is a kind of figment of a technological imagination. And she is. Um, she has a. She has a kind of. A, 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 let's say a soft English accent, and um, as, as with the other elements of this work, everything is ready to hand, or as I would describe, it, ready to hand. That it. That the, these are existing technologies in the world. So the the cell tower objects that are scattered through Venice, the anechoic chamber, the printer, and the voice. These things exist in the world already. They are technologies that I have adapted. So the voice is. A, it's a synthetic human voice that reads these lists of vanished, bygone, absent, withdrawn entities, forces, um, and materials. 
and uh, it's it's emitted in several ways. So yes, it's a voice that you hear, but it's also a voice that's um, that's emitted digitally as data. Um, um, off of these cell t- cell towers, these cell trees, as a kind of um, as electromagnetic activity that can be kind of captured by way of a handheld device individually by the listener. So at the pavilion, there are three cell towers, and then there are another um, four scattered across the city. The three at the pavilion speak; they have a, a, they have speakers, so you hear them reading um, the contents. Uh, the content of the lists, and they also emit it digitally as a kind of network, as a networked experience. Um, and then they are printed in the library and uttered in this anechoic chamber on site. So the vo- the voice is really um, it's a kind of soft, authoritative um, replica of us that reads these names. And it's a I mean I was really interested in the in using a synthetic voice because. Not only because it is a surrogate for us, there's a set of sense of indifference to us that this voice reads, regardless of us listening. We cannot, we cannot listen to the entire work. It takes seven months for the work to be read, and so um, the the work is ungraspable in, in in terms of our experience of it. But it, but there's also an indifference to us listening that this voice reads, you know, whether we are listening or not. So the the network exists. Um, the network, the network also exists whether whether tuned into or not. There is this ongoingness to that to that aspect of the work. That brings me nicely into my next question. A little bit, um, how are you gathering this intel? The, the inventory of lost things from our planet includes ghost towns, burnt books, former nations, closed radio stations, extinct languages, destroyed artworks, dead religions, missing aircraft, discontinued fragrances. Things that melted, yeah. How are you getting this intel, and and how how have you collated that metadata into your artwork? So the li- yeah the list in a way there's an index, um, which is what you were just reading from, and the, and and I've been calling that the list of lists, and it is a it is a it's a poem in a sense. It's a poetic imagining of loss and goneness, of absence and obsolescence. And um, it's it's a subjective um, take on what it might be to assume something being gone, vanished, or disappeared. And the list is a is built by way of um, intuition and me following my nose. So I started with several ideas. I started with some ob- you know very obvious ones. I guess when I when I first started thinking about this 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 artwork, I. Yeah, I started with probably twenty lists. Um, you know, things that might be quite obvious, like extinct species. Um, you know, uh, vanished borders, and certainly things that related to other work of mine, like fragrances that are no longer produced. So I was thinking about these sorts of forms and entities and materials that are kind of n- not around us any longer. <clears throat> and so I just started. I started building those lists, and much like the other materials in the work that they are ready to hand, they exist in the world. All of this data exists in the world. So it's it's collated and built as a database by me, very much by hand. Wow. Um, but, you know, it's existing knowledge. So the project does really kind of push up hard against what it might be for us to assume um, uh, what, it might, what, it, what it might be for us to assume that we can contain 
the world in a kind of encyclopedic form. So, you know, the project asks questions of encyclopedic thinking, all this kind of impossibility of containment or, um, you know, uh, the, the ability for us to know something in some kind of complete way. Because, the, you know, the, the, the lists themselves are full of holes and absences as much as they are about absence. And they're an expression of my own filter bubble, The you know, that I speak English, that I um, live in a developed country where I have access to certain kind of um, certain technology. So all of the data is a, is a kind of expression of what it is that's within within reach of, of me in many respects. I had three researchers that... Um, that I that worked with me in my studio for um, for about a year. Uh, they worked once a week to help me build the lists, but I really needed to do it myself. I probably produced about seventy percent of the lists myself, simply because I needed to um, be with the data. I mean, that was really that is the main part of the work. That is the heart and the center of the work are these lists, because I, you know. It wasn't that they were just kind of born out of um, me sitting down and producing a two hundred and sixty, a list of two hundred and sixty, um, uh, you know, a, a, um, sorry, an index of two hundred and sixty lists. I needed to kind of follow my nose, and things started to reveal themselves as I started to build that list. That is in- intense. So, so just to just out of sheer curiosity. Yeah. You were, did you Google like extinct yeah, start, birds? Yeah, you start by looking at existing databases of say yeah extinct mammals, extinct birds, and you start to kind of cross uh, reference across uh, various different sources mm. uh, and collate those into. I mean, we started with kind of Google documents as a way to start to collate all yeah. this information and kind of share data between myself and my three researchers. And then that then, I mean, I have a, I have a newfound respect for Excel, um, <laughs> which I used to stare at and kind of drift off. And now um, it's an, so it was, that was an incredible tool for sort of organizing data, clearing out duplicates, um, working, working out ways of systematizing the data, and then also allowing for me to then put code into the, um, you know, wrap code around the terminology in order for that to then be generated as um, text-to-speech through this Amazon product. Just a question around wrapping code around. So um, so you're not actually feeding it through a voice that's just got a list with return, full-stop return, so there's a pause. It's actually you've wrapped in word plus pause time plus word. Yeah, there's, there's a, I mean... It, each list's different. I mean, for example, the list of abandoned oil platforms, um, which is, you know, the, these oil platforms of depleted um, fields in the ocean, these large structures that are that that are that sit and are left to just let's say just rust away and fall back into the ocean. There are over forty thousand of these in our oceans. Wow! And each one of these is named by way of its. Um, longitude or lati- latitudinal coordinates, yep. and who has the lease on that? Um, the, because companies tend to keep the leases on those until they're gone. Yeah. Um, and so, the the naming of those is both numerical, it's spatial, and then it's through um, through the through the le- through who has the lease. So yeah, there's data that's uh, sorry, there's um, coding that's wrapped around that data, which is you know so that those numbers are read in the correct way. Um, that sometimes there's pronunciation coding sometimes there's it's about speed uh, to make it feel a little bit more natural My so goodness. there's a whole lot of things that you can do with that I mean it's super simple I haven't I had you know there are it's over three million words it reads 15,000 words a day for seven months six so it's six days a week eight hours a day for seven months 
15,000 words a day without repeat. So it's an incredibly large language object. Yeah. And I was really interested in is it as an object that somehow thinking about all of that language as a sort of sculptural um, material. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the list is the sort of colossal object of vanished things that have a sort of material presence um, uh, in the work. So, you know, because I, you know, I was really interested in thinking about the act of speaking, the act of, uh, um, or this kind of sound, you know, you talked about it as sound, yeah. um, but thinking about the speech act as a, as a force of, um, of a produ- uh, speech as a, as a producer of, of, of worlds, as a producer yeah. of reality. So in the same way that we would think about, you know, legal frameworks and legal speech, language that describes or let's say frames our, um, the, 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 the world in which we live or thinking about um, incantation or prayer, thinking about wishes, thinking about naming and the way that, that or hate speech, mm. thinking about political speech, that the, these, these forms of speech produce worlds. Mm. And so I was interested in sort of conjuring up all of this gone stuff momentarily, kind of calling it up into the present by by it being named once before it drifts back down below us again. Yeah, like a little, not like a ghost, but like it bec- it becomes momentarily a, a, a ghost, and then does yeah, it, it 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 rises up before it sinks back down. Perhaps, yeah. Beautiful. I just it's just such a massive work. When when the t- cell towers, just to get my head around the actual, they they saying they speak they say different words at different times, mm-hmm. but they're all synced together. Or how does it play out? Yeah. So the the three the three trees at the pavilion are all speaking at the same time. Yeah, okay. So the voice is generated in a in a space not so unlike the studio that we're sitting in now. Um, it's a it's a it's an anechoic chamber. It's an echo-free chamber. It's a it's a chamber that, in a way, you could think about. I mean, our experience of sound is 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 often through its relationship to other materials, right? So, a sound, our experience of it is of it hitting something else or somehow reverberating off something else. And when in an anechoic chamber, that sound is sort of somehow centralized around the thing that generates it. Yeah. So. This anechoic chamber is, it's a very specific shape. It's, a, it's called a tapered anechoic chamber and it's used by military and engineers not so much to test sound but to test electromagnetic activity, to, to test things like antenna, cell phones, um, radio, um, transmissions that are, that, are, that, that, are, that are sent outwards from within that box over an, an infinite horizon inside the box. So the mm-hmm. boxes are kind of, the box, the, the chamber offers a sort of an, a way to imagine um, an infinite space inside an, an, an ins- inside a form. So that is that is where the voices or the utterance occurs. So there's simply a, a window that you stare um, you step into this chamber and you see a speaker and a microphone. So it's just a very simple way to imagine two non-human forms engaged in speaking and listening. Yep. The speaker is speaking and the microphone is listening. And then that is that is gener- that is then transmitted out to each of the each of the th- three trees on site. And then the th- then the other trees off site all kind of act as let's say re- repositories of mm-hmm. that data and when you approach the tree, you connect to it by way of it being like a hotspot. But the moment you join that network, you're no longer online. You're only connected to that tree. And you can then listen to those lists on your handheld device or whatever it is you have with you to connect to the tree. I like the way you refer to them regularly as trees. That's mm. really nice. And where where do you source those? Are they made 
like that to be disguised as trees or have you disguised them yourself? They, they're much, as I mentioned, with the chamber, with the printer, with the, with the, with the synthetic human voice. They are um, existing te- they're an existing technology. They are called um, stealth cell towers and um, they've affectionately known as Frankenpines as well. <laughs> and they, um, they, are, they are a very peculiar, very strange object that started to appear on, the, on our landscapes about... Um, 30 years ago in the States, companies started to look to camouflage and hide our telecommunications network. This invisible network in which we're all, you know, so reliant is held up by hard by hardware, by infrastructure. And this needs kind of strong visible lines of connection in order to create a network. And so these companies started to look for ways to you know, to conceal that network on the landscape. And this company in, in the States started to build these fake trees as, um, as cell towers. And these have proliferated across the world. And I worked with a company in China, in Guangzhou, who make these. So they are very much, they are not artified copies. They are the things that they stand in to be. They are, they are stealth cell towers. Um, they are all pine trees. They're all, so they're all sort of copies of one another. Mm. Um, one of the pine trees in Venice sits inside a sort of park of pine trees, so it's trying to hide amongst its own species, doing a terrible job. These things do the opposite of what they try to to do. They they somehow stick out more by seeking to to go unnoticed. Um, so they're very clumsy objects. They're very they're, they're 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 you know they're surrogates for nature, but they also they displace and replace nature in their very um, being. So they 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 have quite an antagonistic relationship to sculpture, mm. um, but also to um, uh, you know to the environment. I mean, they come from Guangzhou, which is a fa- which is the you know a, the factory of the world. So much of our built environment comes from um, cities of, of of that of that nature. Um, and Guangzhou is is is, an, is a kind of a you know a steroidal city of of mass production. And these trees, I mean, I've been to the factory twice, and it's just kind of unimaginable that there is a place in the world where we sort of churn out fake nature at the expense of nature. Um, so we seek to kind of replace and displace, but also look to, you know, to, yeah, to somehow mimic mimic nature, but actually kind of, um, yeah, they're very do it damage surreal. by doing so. Yeah, they're very they're very peculiar. And I imagine that the trees in which it's which it resides with uh, find it ra- rather repulsive because it's repelling nature. It's standing there and sending off an energy which isn't naturally. Produced, it's it's a yeah. it's a vibration or a waveform, which is yeah. And they they, I mean, we don't have any here in New Zealand. There was there was one stealth cell tower um, on the North Shore some years ago, but it's no longer there. It was out in I think it was out in Albany, if I'm not mistaken. How but, mysterious. <clears throat> yeah, we did. There was one, but we actually there was an article in the Herald. Someone um, sent me last week, and there's a rubbish bin down at the viaduct that is a a stealth. Rubbish um, bin? Yeah, it's a stealth uh, wow. um, cell repeater. Um, yeah, so there's a... Uh, there, Whereabouts? Well, it's down... I, I don't know. It's down... I don't know. It's down around the waterfront there somewhere. I'm going to find out because yeah, I'm always look. down there, always, every yeah, day. Yeah, you'll... It's, so it's, it's, it functions as a rubbish bin, but it's also a cell repeater site. Um, and so so we do have other forms of it here. But, um, you know, the, the audience in Venice, as we were installing the work, were, you know, there was a lot of, um, 
a lot of locals that were like giving us these looks and just like no, no and and saying no 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 get that out of here get what is that thing doing here because people see them and they understand that this is infrastructure they read it as infrastructure they think what's that emitting is it yeah. listening to me is it a surveillance what is this thing doing mm. so um yeah that and, and in an art saturated environment such as Venice it was really fantastic that the work somehow started to be read in that way i was really pleased with that um with that um with that resp- that early response before the exhibition opened which of course they they're affected by by that but yeah that's really fascinating um so you've consulted widely with practitioners working in alchemy hypnosis shamanism and witchcraft for previous artworks and exhibitions are there any other worldly consultation uh any other worldly consultation going on in venice um not directly i mean some of the some of the lists engage those sorts of other ways of knowing or forms of um, let's say esoteric knowledge, but in a way, the the work in Venice is directly influenced by those interests and those earlier works of mine, by way of the fact that it occurred to me very early on in working with these sorts of practitioners that the mouth, that the voice, that breath uh, is a kind of central um, material of, um, let's say, magical thinking. Um, and that, I, that, that, this, that this proposition of thinking about utterance or the speech act as a way to call things up comes out of this, um, this earlier work of mine. So I think there is a direct connection to those ideas, but it's, it's delivered in a much more somehow um, uh, embedded way inside a, a larger proposition of these lists of bygone, vanished and disappeared things. It's definitely got a tra- huge trace of ritualism to it. Yeah, it does. Yeah, certainly this idea of naming um, is, 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 relates directly to um, pra- you know, f- practices and experiences that I've had through the production of artworks that engage those practices. Okay, talking a little bit more now to um, what it feels like to be involved with Venice Biennale. You're only one of 11 New Zealand artists to be chosen to represent our fair country at the Venice Biennale. How do you feel? How, how, how does that feel? I, don't, I mean, it's an incredible honour, no doubt. Like, it's an amazing thing to get to do. You, I think you have to... When you're in the, when you're in the middle of doing it... It pays not to think about it in those terms. I think yeah. you have to really think about it as a continuum. It's part of your, you know, you're making an exhibition. You're making mm. a new work, um, and so I was, you know, trying to remind myself of that at various moments um, of intensity. But um, I also like to think about myself as a, um, as a, you know, as, a, as someone in my first or second year at art school and. And thinking about myself as as someone who's now, um, you know, in, in his early forties, getting to do something like that, and it's an incredible thing. So yeah. I'm really, um, I'm incredibly lucky to have been given the opportunity to do it. There's no doubt. So uh, you know, 
I do remind myself of that. But yeah, I think you also have to just sort of like put that to one side and get on with the work. Yeah, you've got deliverables. To, yeah, exactly. It's got to be good. There's a lot of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pressure. But, you know, New Zealand has also got a very strong track record of of exhibitions in Venice. And I think that is that's another that's another kind of pressure perhaps on the artist who is next um you know or and myself in, in that respect and uh but but you know walking into to representing New Zealand and and the Venice Biennale is really something that has a very strong track record you know there are some countries where you go to you go to the national pavilions and it feels like perhaps there wasn't even an artist involved and it was just like produced by a tourism board you know oh, like there's that's some depressing. Quite, you know so, so New Zealand does have a really um strong uh presence and and so, you know, it's a great thing to be part of. How did you, what is the process behind, uh, you know, for yeah. the application? So so they put out a, a call. I mean, it's it, there were several years where it was a different process, but the process as it was when I, um, I, when I uh, made my proposal and it, it continues uh, at the moment, there's, it's the same process this, this year. Uh, and that is that there's a, there's a public call made to... What I think it, you know the terminology is something like probably a creative team. So it's an artist. It's generally a sort of an artist and a curator, or an artist and curators that would sort of team up in order to produce a, a proposal. And it's it's not quite as simple as just putting your hand up and saying, "Yeah, I'm into that. That sounds good." Mm. Um, <laughs> it's it's really it has to be a, a fully realized, um, uh, let's say, a project mm. by way of what that means um, practically, what that means conceptually. And all of the sort of collateral support around that, so you know, so so somehow extending out to into design or you know uh, exhibition coordination or um, fabrication, publication, you know, all of these sorts of things get kind of like worked through in this in that in that early stage, and then there is a um, it goes to a like a, a panel, um, and I'm not sure how big the panel is. I, I can't quite recall top of my head. I think it's probably like maybe ten. People mm-hmm. and that those those are professionals in the art world. Let's say so. Mm. That might be um, museum directors, curators. There's always an artist, um, and there's always a couple of international, if not one international. So there's a kind of a, a, a mix of people involved in in, in that um, in that ecosystem. And I guess they kind of fight it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't been in the room, so yep. they must just fight it out, and, and yep. they come to a consensus, or maybe there is a. Um, a consensus that's reached very early on between, um, yeah, I just don't know. So, so yeah, you kind of like get a phone call, and I was in my studio when I when I got this email come through, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I. Oh, so you I, got an email? So yeah, I got I got this kind of a formal attachment letter from Creative New Zealand, um, and uh, yeah. Did it say, "Dear Dane, tell I us"? So. I think so. I think it said something like, yeah. "We are happy to inform you your yeah, application are, has been successful." Yeah, so, so, something like that. Yeah, it was, but it was also very, you know, it was celebratory and congratulatory, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was kind of an insane moment. Wow! Sure. And was a call to action like, "Can you give us a call to discuss?" Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So I called my, I called my two curators uh, first. One was in, one was in in Asia somewhere on a research trip and the other was in Mexico. So I got on the phone and woke one of them up and found one in a taxi and um, told them the good news. And, uh, yeah, then we sort of just like, then you sort of on the plane within a few days basically in Venice trying to kind of think about how to realise this this project in real terms. And what that's – I've now got a question about curators. Yeah. Such a great story. So what are curators to you and who were your curators? Yeah, it's a good – it's a really good question because it's – I mean, if we, we're talking about shaman and 
um, yeah. you know, uh, magical practices of various <laughs> kinds. I mean, yeah, the, the, the role of the curator is, is, is a slippery one and it's different for everybody. Um, uh, I had two curators. One is uh, Dr. Zara Stanhope and she used to be at the Auckland Art Gallery uh, and is now in Queensland. And the second is uh, was Chris Sharp, and he's uh, an American who lives in Mexico City. And uh, it was a kind of forced marriage. It was my idea to put those two people together. They had never met each other. Um, and so that was some, something of a risk, but it was one that I wanted to take because I felt that the project had enough, um, let's say, uh, it had it had a kind it had sort of layers to it that. I felt that two voices would be really useful both to kind of um, engage with me as I as the work unfolded and took shape and also to somehow um, yeah, find ways to, let's say, verbalise or um, build language around what, what it is that this thing might do in relationship to an audience. So I, for me, curators are sort of a, um, a, a sounding board, a sort of bouncing board, people that are inside the project, so their interest is is not, um, their interest is very much in terms of this being the strongest possible um, proposition in terms of an idea and how to, how to materialize that. And, and, they've, and, and also to, yeah, just to find ways to build language around, uh, you know, look for- Advisors in a way. Yeah, kind of advisors and, yeah. um, and, and confidants, trusted voices yeah. inside the project, not exterior to the project that yeah. might have other, you know, other things that um, that might interf- not so much, um, yeah, that conflicts of interest. Yeah, just just ways ways of them being inside the project. So they 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 were that for me, indeed. Mm. And they both did very different things. They they didn't. Um, so you know, they both took leads on different aspects of the project and um, helping to to find ways to to materialize it, realize it. Well, it's a fantastic project. I wish I could make it over to listen to it mm. and experience it early in the morning when it's not too hot. Yeah, I know. I think it's really hot there. I just had some friends who sent me a short little clip of them in the garden and they were sort of like, oh my God, it's so Yeah, hot it's right insane. Now. You get yeah. caught. You have to find a nice shady place to just sit and eat. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Dane. I'm Pleasure. Gonna, that's really interesting. It was thank so you. great to hear all about it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. For all those in Venice this season, the Palatina Canonica resides on Venice's River de Siti Materi until November the 24th. For more information, go to nz.venice.com. This podcast was brought to you with the help of Liquid Studios. You're listening to an Artache podcast. Creative content from Artache.com.